look, there's really no other way for me to say it. You're missing out. If you're not playing this, you're missing out. It's the free contests on the NBC Sports Predictor app. They've already handed out over $3 million in cash prizes, and there are tens of thousands more up for grabs this and every week. So get in on the action right now with the NBC Sports Predictor app powered by PointsBet. For the biggest names in sports talk, watch the NBC Sports Channel every weekday on Peacock. Featuring pro football talk, the Dan Patrick Show, the Ritz Eisen Show, and more. Streaming live for free on PeacockTV.com slash NBC Sports. Hello, I'm Peter King. Welcome to the MMQB podcast with Peter King, where I take you inside the minds of the biggest influencers in the NFL. This week, a special podcast from the site of Super Bowl 52. I'll have the voice of NBC Sports. He'll be doing his 10th Super Bowl, Al Michaels. Then I'll be joined by Howie Roseman, the architect of the upstart Philadelphia Eagles. And I'll be joined by Dan Shaughnessy for a conversation. He's one of my favorite sports columnists in the country. He, of course, works for the Boston Globe. And finally, we'll have a special report from the MMQB's Road to the Super Bowl Tour. Kalen Kaler stops in Ada, Ohio to see how the Super Bowl football is made. But first, let's talk for a moment about the coach who was on this podcast last week. That was Doug Peterson of the Philadelphia Eagles. Uh, I spent some time with Peterson last week uh, in Philadelphia and near his home in New Jersey. And there's one thing about Super Bowls that I always find extremely interesting. So there's a lot of people who are saying, oh, no, not the Patriots again, please. Come on, eight times. This is the eighth time for the Patriots. you got to be kidding me. Please. But every year I find two or three stories, both with the team that's been there all the time, you know, or with the visitor. And this year, I think the most interesting story is Doug Peterson. And I'm going to tell you why. Uh, Doug Peterson, 10 years ago, was a high school football coach and a, uh, a carpool driver driving his kids to school at Calvary Baptist Academy in Shreveport, Louisiana. I'll talk about that, actually, with Al Michaels on this podcast uh, because he finds the story as incredible as I do. But Doug Peterson's had a very, very interesting football life, backed up Brett Favre for eight years, um, You know, was the quarterback on the field playing when Don Shula won his record-breaking 325th football game to break the all-time record of George Hallis. The quarterback that day, Doug Peterson. That day, Doug Peterson threw his first pass ever in an NFL game. And he didn't play great, and he only threw six passes in the game. But it was enough for, the, uh, for Miami to win that game. But I, the reason I'm bringing up Doug Peterson is that you know, I think everybody is looking at this game and saying, man, how much money can we put down on the Patriots? I mean, come on, Patriots are going to kill these guys. And I've told everybody in the last few days, hey, listen, not so fast. Did you see the NFC Championship game? And, and now that I've had time to digest what happened in that game, and I asked Doug Peterson about this the other day, I think it was an absolutely spectacular 
call of a game. I think it was an extremely good game plan, you know, basically written up uh, and planned by Frank Reich, the offensive coordinator, uh, and also another longtime NFL quarterback. Uh, and the calls on the play sheet by Doug Peterson, I think, were tremendous. Uh, I go into that a lot this week in my Monday morning quarterback column, but just just overall, the only reason why I really wanted to mention this, and I really wanted to talk a little bit about Peterson against Bill Belichick, is that I think one of the things that happens in a Super Bowl is we get these ideas in our head that, okay, and one of the ideas this week obviously is, quote, Belichick's going to outcoach Doug Peterson, end quote. I think that is Gorgonzola. I think that is Crapola. I just think it's it's a ridiculous supposition. The reason I think it's a ridiculous supposition is that every week when he puts together his game plan, Doug Peterson does something with that game plan and with his team called the faceless opposition. And by that, I mean... He does not talk to his team. Hey, boy, we got so much respect for Bill Belichick. And that Tom Brady, he's something. You know, as of Friday, you know, and I don't know what happened over the weekend, uh, you know, or early this week, he had not mentioned to his team, uh, or to his coaches, rather, he had not discussed how great a coach Bill Belichick was. And there's a method to that. And And he just thinks that, hey, listen, coaches, look at the players on the other team and design your best plan for their team and against their coaching staff. And players, you look at the guy who's going to be across from you in this game or the or the multiple guys who are going to be across from you in this game and play against those guys. Find out what makes them tick. Why are they good? What are their weaknesses? What can you take advantage of? That is what coaching is about. Not to uh, n- not to basically say that, okay, all right, now listen, we're playing the Patriots this week, and, and boy, they're really good. It's you give the opponent the proper respect, but you also say the only thing that matters is our 45 guys when we dress on Super Bowl Sunday against their 45, the guy across from you, figure out how to win. And I think he did that extremely well against the Vikings, in the NFC Championship game, and they won by 31 points. So again, I'm not saying go bet the farm on the on the Philadelphia Eagles. I, I would never bet the farm on anybody in a football game because it's a ridiculous, uh, it's just ridiculous happenstance so many times. But all I'm saying is I've got a lot of respect for the Philadelphia Eagles and their coaching staff based on what I've seen the last few weeks. And now, brought to you by State Farm, my conversation with Al Michaels. Back on the MMQB podcast with Peter King, I'm joined now by Al Michaels, the uh, veteran play-by-play guy. He's going to do the Super Bowl this year, obviously. And uh, Al's got one of the most interesting lives of all broadcasting lives. And so... We are going to squeeze a monstrous amount of falderall in a 20-minute period here. So, Al, I appreciate you joining me. Thanks. My pleasure, Peter. Boy, let's let's try to squeeze that in. There's a lot of stuff to talk about. Yeah. So, um, 
You know, the first thing I, I wanted to ask you is something that you said first, and obviously Al will be in Minneapolis this week doing the Super Bowl where we are recording this before I leave New York and before he leaves California to go to Minneapolis for the Super Bowl. But the first thing I thought of when I, when I knew that we were going to speak is I thought of that you were the first person who said there are going to be two teams in Los Angeles or there very well could be two teams in Los Angeles. And you said this maybe four five, I don't even remember. It was a long time ago. It wasn't two weeks before this thing happened. So I want to know, how did you know that there were going to be two teams in Los Angeles? It's simple math, Peter. Uh, if Nashville and Jacksonville and Charlotte have teams and the metro area for each of those cities is roughly a million and a half to two million. And I live in Southern California, and there are close to 20 million people in Southern California. And you build a 65,000-seat stadium. There's no way you can't fill it. And, of course, it was open for so many years. The Rams came back. Uh, and it's all about, as you know, it's stadiums. So Stan Kroenke was not going to get what he wanted in St. Louis has enough money to build the stadium, so I knew that he was going to come eventually as soon as that lease was up in St. Louis. And then down the road with Dean Spanos, uh, he didn't have the stadium that he wanted, and they were going back and forth. And you had Mark Davis in Oakland, and he wasn't going to get a stadium. So what happened here? You had three cities, St. Louis, Oakland, and San Diego, with inferior facilities for what it's worth. And I knew you can you know, come one, come all to Southern California, there was no question in my mind that a, an area that supports uh, two hockey teams can certainly support two NFL teams. There was no question in my mind, Peter, that this would work. Did you uh, did you figure that the Raiders would always be bound for Vegas, or did you think this this Raiders Chargers stadium might get sort of? Because I always thought the Raiders Chargers idea was could very well happen, even though it wasn't a really good idea. What did you think was going to happen with the Raiders then? I, I never saw that happening, Peter, because I knew that Stan Kroenke was the puppeteer, and Stan had the money to build a stadium, and they just couldn't compete with Stan in Carson, where they had that site. So I, I know that that you know, came down to the end and all of that, but from what I had heard, there was no question that if Stan was going to come out here and he's going to put over $3 billion into the stadium, that it was going to happen. So that's the case right now. He's, you know, it's under construction. They're behind, uh, which means that they probably won't get in there until, I think, 2020, and then the Super Bowl's there the following year. But frankly, living out here and kind of knowing what was going on, I just didn't see Carson being – I thought I gave Carson a 10% chance and Kroenke a 90% chance. Yeah, and now that the Raiders are going to Vegas, will it work? I believe it will. Look, I was one of the first people who said that when the NHL decided to expand, I said, I would love to own a piece of that team. That's a can't miss. And people would say, well, no, they're there to gamble and they're in the hotel. I said, no, no, no. Las Vegas is a large metropolitan area. Most of those people came from other cities, many of them from NHL cities. Many of them are hockey fans. I mean, to sell out a hockey arena... What do you need? You need maybe 14,000 season tickets and then day of game sale or single ticket sale. And I thought, wow, you know, they don't have a team, any team in Las Vegas. 
I think that would be easy. Now, I had no idea that that team would be so good. I mean, here they are as maybe Stanley Cup contenders. I mean, whatever happened there with the draft and, and all the rest, they have gotten that totally totally right. But for me, if you li- a lot of people moved to Vegas and were hockey fans. And they tell me it's, it's just spectacular in that building, and obviously they're selling out every night. It's funny, in Minneapolis this week, the Vegas Golden Knights will be in town on Friday, and I'm going with a few people. <laughs> and, and, you know, because I just, you know, I like hockey. And sure. so I, I, I'm, I've been totally fascinated with how an expansion team can actually be really, really good. And expansion teams, okay, in football, they were okay the first year. You right. know, Jacksonville and Carolina, Houston was never any good. Uh, you know, early on, but 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 most times expansion teams stink. So you're a big L.A. Kings guy. You're right. a season ticket holder. Why are the Vegas Knights any good? Well, I don't know exactly what happened, but I think I think the draft was constructed, Peter, from what I know, to give them a better shot at being good early on. Now you're right about most teams really are not very good in their first year, but I can think of three examples where teams got very good their, their second year. Two of them are in the NFL because Jacksonville and Carolina came in in 95, and in 96, each of those teams yeah. is playing in a conference championship game. I mean, you, people forget that in 96, you had a chance to have Carolina and Jacksonville in the Super Bowl in <laughs> yeah. their second year. And I, you know, I go back so far that when the Angels were given the franchise and they played in Los Angeles before they moved to Anaheim, and Gene Autry owned the team. If you go back and look at what happened, in 1962, their second year of existence, the Angels were in first place on Labor Day. On Labor Day, they were in first place in their second season. And I was, you know, living here, I was in high school at the time, and the Dodgers were great. The Dodgers would go on to, to you know, win several pennants in the World Series. And I'll never forget the LA Times headline, on the 5th of July, uh, after you know everybody said, oh, who's ever in first place on the 4th of July, they're going to win it. And the, the Angels and Dodgers were both in first, and the LA wow. Times headline was, Heaven can wait, Angels in first on fourth. It was crazy. <laughs> and that was the Bob Alinsky year, too, and he pitched the no-hitter in his fifth, his fifth uh, outing in May. Wow. Crazy. What yeah. happened down the stretch of that year? They faltered? Or they did... faded. Yeah, yeah, in September they weren't very good. And, you know, I mean, they, they, they lasted as long as they could. I think Dean Chance was on that team. And then Belinsky started to fade and Ken McBride and guys like that. And, you know, they had Bob Serve and Ted Klasuski. They had wow. all the old guys, all yeah. the old guys. Yeah. And, uh, but they, they, they hung in there. They, yeah. they, they made it a race for, uh, you know, uh, for most of the season anyway. And, it was trem- and they were, not only that, Peter, they were playing at Dodger Stadium. Dodger Stadium had wow. just opened up, and the Angels were going to build their stadium in Anaheim, but they had no place to play. The year before, they had played at, at old Wrigley Field down near the Coliseum where the Dodgers were playing while they built Dodger Stadium. So the Angels moved into Dodger Stadium with the Dodgers in 1962, but were told by uh, the powers that be, like the radio announcers, were not allowed to say, Tonight's game is at Dodger Stadium. They had to say tonight's game is in Chavez Ravine. <laughs> they were trying to establish. They, yeah, they, they were just trying to establish their own identity, and then they went yeah. down to Anaheim in 1966. Yeah, sort of the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim deal. Right. Yeah, whatever they call them. Right. Uh, so, Al, I've always wondered this. So, you 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 get out of Arizona State in the early 60s, and you end up your first you know baseball play by play job 
is doing the Hawaii Islanders of the Pacific Coast League in 1968. And A, I always wondered how that happened. And B, what was it like to do a team that everybody had to travel like 3,000 miles to get there, and you had to travel 3,000 miles to go anywhere else? Well, what happened was I had gone over to Hawaii uh, for about a four-day just mini vacation in 19, early 68. And I had sent, at that point in, in uh, my life, my career really hadn't started, but I'm sending letters, snail mail, to every team, major and minor league. And, you know, you'd, you'd go out to the mailbox every day and just hope that there was something in there. And all, once in a while you'd get a letter saying, hey, you know, thanks for writing, we'll keep you in mind, blah, blah, blah. So I decided that I was going to actually go to Hawaii and try to get a meeting with the general manager of the team, a man by the name of Jack Quinn, and I got, I got the meeting. And I went to see him, and I, I dropped off a tape. It was a reel-to-reel tape from my days in Arizona State. And the baseball game that I was announcing that was on that tape, Peter, had Rick Monday, Sal Bando, and Reggie Jackson. Wow. In the, wow. So I went to school with all those guys. Now, Monday, Monday and Bando were playing in that game, and Jackson was on the freshman team. And he was also playing football. So and Bobby Winkles was the coach, and he went on to manage several major league teams uh, over several seasons. So what happened was he, he said, listen, if something pops, I'll call you, blah, blah, you know, and I leave there figuring nothing's going to pop. In 1968, sure enough, the guy who was doing his games, a guy by the name of Marty Chase, his reserve unit was called up to active duty. And Jack Quinn called me at the outset of the season. He said, can you come over here and do a few games, not knowing when Marty would come back. So, of course, I was on the next plane to Hawaii. And that started a, a three-year run over there where I did high school football and basketball, University of Hawaii football and basketball, armed services basketball, the Hawaii Islanders, on television twice a day. It was fantastic wow. to the point where this was before our first child was born. Lou and I have a you know, boy and a girl, and, and we're there, and we're, we have a tiny little apartment, but it's at the foot of Diamond Head, and we have a 260-degree almost wraparound view of Waikiki, Diamond Head, and the ocean. And I'm going swimming in the ocean like every morning before I go to work, and we looked at each other and said, are we going up or down from here? And then it was on to Cincinnati. <laughs> you know, I, you got there right in the, uh, right sort of at the start of the Big Red Machine, what, in 71, right? Yes. yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. And um, so I, I, I ended up working for the Cincinnati Inquirer for the first five years of my career, starting in 1980. And right. I got to know Bench sort of at the end. Seaver was on that team, mm-hmm. Concepcion, uh, and a few of those guys. But it was nothing like it was in the 70s with Pete and, and all that. So uh, tell me your favorite doing the red story from the days of the Big Red Machine. Well, I'll put it this way, Peter. My favorite athlete to ever cover, ever, is Pete Rose. No question. I was, with him, yeah. I was with him for three years. We became good friends. I would drive to Riverfront in the afternoon. The first thing I would do is go by Pete's locker because there was always such energy being emitted from that locker. He was always alive and alert, and and uh, he loved to banter, loved to kid around, and he taught me so much, so much about baseball. So I had Pete in his prime. I had. Johnny ascending. I had Perez in his prime. Morgan getting traded over. Sparky Anderson managing. I mean, I am getting a PhD in baseball, and I'm in my mid-20s. And I've got this team, and I knew 
Peter, I just knew that this was one of the great teams in the history of baseball. And I'll tell you something funny, too, because here I was, I'm a kid in my 20s, I'm doing the Big Red Machine, it's unbelievable. And we went to Penn and I do a World Series, you know, in 1972 on national television with Kurt Gowdy and Tony Kubek. I remember walking around town a couple of times, and the older fan might say, hey, you know, uh, you think this team is good? You should have been here when Klazuski and Post <laughs> and Bell and, you know, Thurman. I'm going, oh, yeah, right. And I thought to myself, don't get that way. Never get that way. It's not always better later. Sometimes it's pretty terrific at that point. So there were so many great stories about Cincinnati. And, you know, the, there's, I don't say there's a regret, but, you know, I got hired by Bob Hausman and Dick Wagner, and then we had you know three really good years, and my contract was up, and the Giants came after me. And the Giants were going to more than triple my salary. So, you know, I went into Housem and I said, can we get a, at least close to this? And we couldn't, and it was off to San Francisco. But it was, it was tough. It was tough watching the Reds in the World Series in 75 and 6, because, you know, I could have been I That was your those, team. Those games. Those are my team. And then, but I got to hand it to Housem and Wagner. Who did they pick to succeed me? Marty, Marty Brenneman, Brenneman. and yeah. he's still there. How yeah. fantastic is that? That is great. Uh, with Al Michaels on the MMQB podcast with Peter King. So, Al, um, you know, what really in, what's really interesting to me is I got to know Pete Rose sort of at the end of his career. But the thing I really, really liked about him is that I show up, I'm 25 years old, uh, 24 years old, uh, and he comes into town. I forget it was either the Expos or the uh, or the Phillies. And I just went up and introduced myself to him because they wanted me to at the Inquirer to write something about Pete coming into town. That day, he gave me forty five minutes. He doesn't know me from Adam. I am a little punk, wide eyed punk, and and like I was, I was like it was almost like I was joining the club, yeah. you know. And he yeah. wanted to make sure. And you know who else was like that, really, honestly, even though a lot of guys in the media in Cincinnati didn't see him like that? Johnny Bench was like that. Oh, yeah. One day, sure. one day, one day in, uh, in St. Louis, I went on the road. It was, I think, 81. It might have been 80. But w- we went on the road, and I saw him in the lobby in St. Louis. It was about 93 degrees, humi- humid. And he saw me in the lobby. He says, hey, Peter, what are you doing? And I said, nothing. I'm just going to get breakfast. He goes, why don't you come over and shag for us? So I went across the street. We're at that Marriott in St. Louis. Right. Went across the street, and for two hours, Nuxhall pitched for two hours. He just pitched for two hours. I took uh, Bench's first base glove, and me wow. and Rich Gale shagged in the outfield for Paul Householder, Dwayne Walker, and Johnny Bench. <laughs> oh, and that's great. That was, and I'll tell you one thing. I must have lost about 10 pounds that day. And, and Nuxy must have lost thirty because he always used to go out there and he'd have that you know that black uh, elastic belt yeah. around him to try to you know like sweat off three times as much. Yeah, uh, I he was my partner you know for those wow. three years. And uh, he you know Peter he was Nuxy was really great because you know when I come to town the town is going uh, you know what is this a twenty five twenty six year old guy from Hawaii is going to do the Cincinnati Reds. And when Nuxie embraced me, uh, and uh, a, a guy named Nick Clooney, oh yeah, embraced I know me Nick. Too. Yeah, Nick Clooney, who had a, a game show, well, not a game show, but he had a variety show. And you know, Nick had a kid, and <laughs> yeah. I, I, met, I met the kid. We, we don't know where we're going with this. I met the kid like thirty-five years later, and I see him, and he comes up to me and he goes, "Hey." 
He said, you got to tell me, why did you leave Cincinnati? <laughs> We're talking about George Clooney, yeah. who would go to bed. He'd tell me he'd go to bed in, uh, with the transistor radio in his ear. Yeah. So, you know, the, the, the Clooney family was, was terrific to me, and Nuxy was the best. Al, I'm going to fast. Oh, oh, but before I leave that, I want to sure. know. Pete Rose in the Hall of Fame, yes or no? You might be a little prejudiced, but let me hear your thoughts. I'm a little prejudiced. I mean, I, you know, I just think it's sad. It's not tragic. But what happened to Peter said, I mean, here was a guy, I just loved to watch him play. He gave it everything. In a, in a spring training game, he's playing every bit as hard as he was in the seventh game of a World Series, and I've seen him in, in both situations. And he was, he was just so great to watch. And I hate, I hate what happened to him, let's put it that way. And I yeah. understand why people don't want him in there. Yeah, you know, at a certain point, I'd love to see him in the Hall of Fame, but I do understand why he's not. Um. Now, Al, I'm going to take a slight U-turn, and I'm going to ask you about the time that you were uh, you were doing a little uh, correspondence job during the O.J. Simpson car chase, mm-hmm. and you're on with Peter Jennings, and right. and Peter Jennings gets a supposed eyewitness who's a crank phone caller from the Howard Stern Show. And I've got to ask you, because I've always wondered this, what's going through your mind when you figure out that this guy is on national TV, live broadcast of one of the most famous people in our society, trying basically to get away with murder? I had to parse my words so carefully because I knew within... You know, three syllables. This wasn't a real call because Peter Jennings had been told we have a Mr. Higgins who lives across the street from OJ and he can look over the hedge and see OJ, which I knew he couldn't because OJ, you know, lived five blocks from me and I played a lot of tennis over there. And there's nobody who lives across the street and can see over the hedge. So right off the bat, I'm going, mm, this doesn't sound right. And then the guy comes on the air and goes something like, uh, "Hello, yeah, I can see OJ, and he looks scared." I'm going, uh, "It's not. That's this is not the case." I'm sitting in Los Angeles. I'm sitting next to Bill Redeker in, in the studio here, and then Jennings is on in New York, Koppel's on in Washington. So we're all over the place. We can't see each other. But within you know ten seconds, I, I write a note to Redeker saying, "This he's got to get this guy off the air. It's a phony phone call." So I thought it was uh, one of Howard's regular guys. It turned out to be his second guy, a guy named Maury from Brooklyn. Anyway, he's on for a minute and a half, and Jennings, you know, uh, says goodbye and really never explains that this was not a real phone call. So as a longtime Howard Stern fan, and knowing that I'd been on the show and I was definitely going to wind up on the show again after all of this, <laughs> I had to parse my words so carefully. And so I came in at a certain point, and I said to Peter, lest anyone think. Now, I'd never used <laughs> the word lest in my life. <laughs> lest anyone think that was a legitimate phone call. It was not. It was totally farcical. Yeah, so you never used, used the word lest and farcical, lest and farcical in two sentences. In two sen- <laughs> so, to this, to, so Howard and Robin, you know, when, when they're on the air every once in a while, our, our buddy Al, you know, with the lest and farcical thing. And Peter, I mean, to this day, all these years later, especially in, uh, in MetLife Stadium, I'll be on the field before the game, and people are yelling at me, Al, it's totally farcical, totally. <laughs> and you hear it around the country. So, you know, I, I just what I was trying to do is explain to the audience that this was not legitimate, but not trash Howard, you know, and not make it seem right. as if, you know, Howard had put the guy up to it. Oh, it was, uh, oh, that was, I mean, that was as crazy as any night I've ever been through, Peter. 
Um, I got two more things to ask you in our two minutes left. But tell me if you can, okay, how does the O.J. Simpson story happen in the United States? That that really, I, I think for people who are young today and who really don't recall the story, they may know a little bit of it, uh, about it, almost mythologically. But, but I, I mean, here was a guy who had everything. He had everything. You knew him. I mean, sure. is this still one Ever. of the strangest things that you've ever encountered in your life? Definitely. I mean, when you know people, you don't want to ever think you know somebody capable of committing a double murder in cold blood. You don't. Uh, so it was stunning. Absolutely stunning. Now, I think the ESPN documentary was fantastic. Yeah. I think they got to the... They got to the nub of what really happened, and they, they you know, uh, combined it with, you know, where L.A. was at that particular point. And they got to the nub of exactly why he got off, too. That's exactly, yeah. that's exactly right. Yeah. Exactly. They got to the Which nub was of important, which was really an important part of that piece. No yeah. question. Yeah. No question. I mean, you saw, they interviewed one of the, the jurors who said, oh, no, I wasn't going to send him to jail. So what does that tell you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. phew. When she said, I'm paraphrasing, I'm not going to send him to jail in any circumstance. I mean, he's, of course he's going to get acquitted. No, you know what, Peter? I mean, here, it's the crime of the century in in many ways. And you sit here and go, this is a neighbor? This is a guy I've worked with, and I know, and I know her, and I know the family. And I'm going, what? It was was totally surreal, completely. I'm going to end on this one. So in this Super Bowl, you've got Bill Belichick, who's... Uh, one of the best, if not the best coach in NFL history. And then you have a total unknown. You've got Doug Peterson. And you remember the story, obviously, about the Monday night game because you're doing the game (laughs) where uh, it's Green Bay at Oakland and Brett Favre has a decision to make because the night before the game, he (laughs) gets a phone call. He's out playing golf uh, in Orinda, California, in the Bay Area. Right. And he gets a phone call, uh, but the phone call does not come to him. It comes from his wife, Deanna, to Doug Peterson, because Brett never turns his cell phone on. And so I, I just wanted to know what you remember about that night, because to me, that is one of the most amazing football games I've ever seen. Incredible. Anybody who saw it won't forget it. And I can tell you, Peter, that we, we do our production meeting with the visiting team, Green Bay being the visitor, at their hotel, which was the Claremont in Berkeley. So we are over there at about, oh, between 2 and 3 o'clock. And it's December, so the sun's going to go down, you know, in the fives. There's not a lot of sunlight left, but Brett leaves our meeting, and I kind of walk out with him, and I know he's going to try to find a golf course with Doug. He wants to go play nine holes. So they're going to find the nearest course, and they go out. And then I didn't hear about it until the next morning, and then I heard about it, you know, down the line and talked to Doug about it many times. But Doug had the, the cell phone was in his golf bag, and it rang, and it was Deanna. And that's how he found out about it. So he had died on Sunday afternoon, and we're all thinking, you know, what do you, what do, you, what do, you do now? So we didn't think he was going to play. And I remember in the scene set, I was working with John Madden. I said, what do you expect tonight? And John said something along the lines of, you know, we've never been here before. We don't know. And then the game starts. And no matter what he threw up in the air, it came down in somebody's arms. It was crazy. And 
even the Oakland fans rooting for the Raiders. That was crazy, too. That was great. They gave Favre a standing ovation. Of course. It was, an you know, of all the Monday night and Sunday night games I've done for 32 years, that's the one everybody remembers. Everybody. You know, were you there the night that, you know, Favre, absolutely. I mean, it was... It was it was amazing. It was just and then you know we kept taking, you know, shots of him on the bench, and there were moments when he looked fine, and moments when he was anything but fine. And I remember saying at one point, I said he's just going through sinking spells because my father had died a couple of years before, and I knew that feeling of you know you find out about it, and then you know you're okay on one hand, and then all of a sudden you know it, it begins to settle into the pit of your stomach, and so he was coming back and forth and in and out of those sinking spells. And then has a night for the ages. It was tremendously memorable. You know, Al, you're going to have a very interesting game on Sunday because you've got, 10 years ago, you've got a coach who is coaching Calvary Baptist Academy in Shreveport, Louisiana, and driving his boys to school every day. And then you've got Bill Belichick, who 10 years ago this (laughs) week was preparing to play the David Tyree Super Bowl. And, you know, it's such an interesting contrast of a guy like Doug Peterson. He never thought he'd be here. He told me the other day, he said, my whole goal was to be either a position coach or maybe at the outside, a coordinator. And look at him now. He's in the Super Bowl. I think it's going to be fun. That's why we love sports, too. I mean, the stories are great. I think Doug Doug told us uh, before the Dallas game, I think we started to talk about the, the high school job and Louisiana. I think his his salary was like twenty five or thirty five thousand dollars, and then he was supplementing it because I guess uh, the the alumni down there were you know helping them you know pay the rent or whatever he was doing. But I mean to think that he spent four or five years in Louisiana, and and then and then and then to get to the this game, Peter, with a backup quarterback. You know, it's so funny. I was just looking at the history of the Super Bowl. I've done both games with backup quarterbacks, and they both won eighty seven when Doug Williams had taken over during the season uh, and beats Denver, and 90 when Sims gets hurt and Hostetler takes over. Yeah. So those are the two Super Bowls that I remember where you had the backup quarterback coming in to play the game. Al, you've just given me my factoid of the week. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Peter, I was going to save that for the telecast. No, go run with it. Hey, listen, I really, really appreciate you joining me and being so generous with your time, and and I'll see you out in Minneapolis. You bet. Take care. Thanks, Peter. This is the MMQB Podcast. We know all the value of a good night's sleep. I'm out on the road all the time, so believe me, nothing makes me happier than being back home for a good night's sleep thanks to Mattress Firm. And they're going to make your wallet happy too. The base for my argument is simple. Your bed budget can go further when you're shopping at America's neighborhood mattress store. It's like having a touchdown and getting the game ball. They're the head coaches when it comes to mattress expertise. But know this, they're more than just mattress experts. They have a game plan that helps you transform your mattress into a bed. From adjustable bases and sheets to headboards and bedroom decor. They have you literally and figuratively covered up like your favorite cornerback. Go to mattressfirm.com slash podcast to see what deals are happening as soon as you finish this show. They even offer you a 120-night sleep trial to ensure perfection and a 120-night low-price guarantee so you know you'll pay the perfect price. Talk about a one-two punch. That's a knockout. 
So score big with a perfect bed. Head to mattressfirm.com slash podcast to get the play-by-play on how you can monumentally improve your sleep today, tonight, and tomorrow. And now my conversation with Eagles General Manager Howie Roseman, brought to you by State Farm. I had two questions for you. What makes you able to make decisions and not really kind of lose sleep over them? And I'll go back to a couple. Number one is Sam Bradford. When you had to make that call, I mean, that is a potentially franchise-changing call. So why are you able to do things like that? Do you just simply feel it's a part of the job? Who says that you don't lose sleep? Uh, you know, I think in a situation like that, and I remember we talked about it a lot at that time, um, you're staring at the ceiling because it's not just you making a move. You know, you're taking responsibility for a lot of people on the field and off the field. Um, and when you make those kind of franchise-changing decisions, they can go one of two ways. And so you don't take that lightly. But at the same time, you know, someone's got to make the call and someone's got to pull the trigger. And you got to follow all your instincts and your gut and, and your research and, um, and then just kind of live with it. And I think that um, the biggest regrets that I know I personally have had is when I haven't followed those guts and the instincts and walked away from a deal that I know is better for us. Um, but was hard to do and you know I think we, we had this this year you know Jordan Matthews had a historically great first three years as a Philadelphia Eagle wide receiver and by trading a third round pick we were basically telling our scouts that Friday was off of the draft um, to trade for Ronald Darby but um, that was a really hard one to do because of the player Jordan was the person he was the relationships he had on the team and realizing we weren't picking from the first round to the fourth round but um, I slept on it, and I, I went to Jeffrey, and you know, I told him I thought it was the right decision for our team, and I would accept responsibility. And at the end of the day, you know, that that's our role, and the coach does that on the field, and um, that's my role off the field. Is there a deal you didn't make that haunts you? For sure, there's a lot of deals. We Give me one. No, 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 because that's gone <laughs> out of player. But you know, I, I think that's the nature of the job. Um, you know, Ron Wolf said it a long time ago. You, if you're hitting 60% on your decisions, um, you're going to be an unbelievable executive in the National Football League. And so, Well, he told me if you hit 333 on draft day with really good players, yeah. then you're going to be executive of the year. Right. So that's the thing. You just have to – the hard part is accepting that you're going to have some failure. Um, but you have to have your good decisions way outweigh your bad ones and make sure that your priority is intact and um, – and when you make those bad decisions, research the heck out of it so you don't do it again. When you had your little hiatus and went to study other franchises, tell me a couple of things that you learned. Where did you go? Who did you see? What was important when you went out to see these people and these franchises? I think the number one lesson that I learned was it's about the people. You know, it's about the people you hire. It's about the people on the field and off the field. It's about the people you surround yourself with and... Um, these jobs are too big for one person to just try to create and control everything. So you got to hire really good people that you trust and that can do a great job and um, hope for the best for those people as well. What did you say to Jeffrey Lurie when he asked you about Doug Peterson, hiring him as head coach? I said that you had a, a tremendous offensive mind 
a tremendous person who we know had the same core values and principles that we had um, and that he had this plan for an amazing coaching staff and that in the front office we could surround him with really good people and we could all build uh, something that would be really fun. Are you, when you hear that all 53 playoff points have been scored by players who you added to the team this calendar in 2017, that's a pretty amazing record. Do you say, wow, we did a pretty good job? I think it's a tremendous credit to our coaching staff. I mean, to get this group of new players and acclimate them in our scheme and get them this successful, pretty impressive. Howie, who who would you say was most important in sort of making you have the philosophy you do as a general manager, which is, you know, don't be afraid of making the big decisions? Yeah, I think that's Jeffrey, you know, and Jeffrey sits us down and tells us, you know, what he wants from his leadership. Um, he wants us to be aggressive and take risks. He believes that if you don't take risks, you have no chance of being great. You're going to be in the middle. And when you have an owner who says, hey, don't be afraid to fail, um, go after what we believe in, it's easier to take those risks. What did Jeffrey say to you the day you said, I want to trade Sam Bradford to the Minnesota Vikings, our starting quarterback with a week before the season? Well, I think it really goes back to when we sat down and said to Jeffrey, we want to move up and trade a bunch of picks for a quarterback. And um, he could see the vision. He could see that one day he would look out on the field and have a young quarterback who he can look at and know that he has a chance to compete for championships. So I think it started there because by the time <clears throat> that we got to the Sam part, we knew what we had in Carson, and we knew he had a play. And now we had a chance to get not only the resource in terms of draft picks back, but get the money back that we were going to pay Sam. And um, that allowed us to sign Alshon, you know. So we were able to get a first and a fourth and $11 million. And really, when you look at it, that enabled us to improve our team around Carson. Do you remember why, early in this offseason, you really were totally isolated on Nick Foles in trying to get him back? And was that a you and uh, Doug Peterson uh, idea? I mean, how did that come about and what happened? Yeah, I think for us, um, you know, we've got, we had tremendous faith in Nick when he was here before. You know, he went 14-4. and four. For us in 2013 and 14, really, since 2013, he's been 18 and 5 as a starter for us. Um, we knew what kind of person he, he was. We drafted him. Um, we made him our starter. And then, you know, when we had the opportunity to bring him back, you know, I think for uh, Coach and, and our front office, you know, the question was really just to go to Jeffrey because of the amount of money that he really had to eat on our quarterback position. Because of Chase Daniel getting rid of him. Right. <laughs> but to his credit, he was totally on board, and it's all about winning for Jeffrey. And um, once we had that from him, we just uh, moved forward, and obviously he's done a tremendous job for us. And, and does that seem like a good long-haul quarterback situation for you now if you could have Carson Wentz and Nick Foles into the future? Oh, yeah. I mean, you're talking about um, the most important position in all of sports. And to have guys who can start and win and play at an incredibly high level, and you know, um, that, that's kind of, that gives you tremendous security. You talk about sleeping at night, you know, having that position set um, the way that we want it, uh, it's incredible. But even more so, when you see them interact, and not only the two of them, but also Nate Sudfeld 
and really the camaraderie between them and how they work together. I mean, they're there at 6.30 in the morning studying tape. They're eating meals together. They're hanging out. They're joking together. It's fun to watch. You're listening to the MMQB Podcast. State Farm knows that for football fans, your car and your home are more than just stuff. They're some of your most valuable possessions. Whether it's the truck that gets you to every tailgate or the place where you watch your favorite team with your favorite people. But life can be a real tough opponent. So when it comes to insuring your car or home, you need a strong defense, like State Farm. Because they know it's more than just a car or a house. So why not give it the protection it deserves? It's just one more way they're here to help life go right. Talk to a State Farm agent today. And now my conversation with Boston Globe sports columnist, Dan Shaughnessy. Back on the MMQB podcast with Peter King. Here with Dan Shaughnessy of the Boston Globe. Uh, Dan, here we are at the Super Bowl. This is your 94th Super Bowl. This is my 89th. And this one is being held in the biggest mall in the world. And it's so fitting to me that this is where the NFL is choosing to hold all of its events in a mall because they want... Uh, the couple from Dubuque, Iowa, to take a special yeah. trip to the Super Bowl and to say, hey, look, there's Joe Montana. Let's go touch him. And so what do you think of this whole scene? It's very bizarre. Uh, and, you know, getting here Sunday, it, it's, I'm, I'm starting to get a little bit used to it, but it's still when you go up by Radio Row and, and see, you know, all the baby strollers and, you know, middle America walking around, and it, they're wonderful folks. But it's just odd to be in such proximity to everybody when, you know, we're all doing our work, the people... Uh, the, the, the players, the teams are doing their work. The hotels are attached to the mall. Uh, I've learned things. I didn't know that Chick-fil-A was closed on Sundays around the country until I came here. And <laughs> oh, it was, come on. No, you didn't know that? I didn't know that. So wow. How would I have, you know, so I found that out. And, uh, you know, I, I've, uh, I, I bought some sneakers. I actually had this plan, Peter, to um, the, the John Lennon uh, no possessions uh, plan. I was going to, like, fly here with a... Oh, pa- I read about this. Yeah, this fly here with, with just my driver's license and a credit card and my laptop. And then acquire everything I needed while I was here, like Tom Hanks living in the mall kind of thing, <laughs> living in the airport. And um, I could buy a suitcase, a toothbrush, and close day by day and, and go back with a, with a full load. But the, the bean counters at the Globe frowned on that plan as excessive, so did not do it. But, yeah, it's, uh, it's unlike anything that I've covered. Dan, I'm going to ask you things totally out sure. of order, having nothing to do with anything. But I'm curious about a few things. Yeah. How many years have you been at the Boston Globe? So uh, I was a part-timer there in 1973 and through the end of college, which was 75. And then Leslie Visser and Kevin DuPont and myself were all part-timers into 77. So I, I count those years, but I didn't come back full-time until, since, until 81. So full-time since 81. Okay, so... In this media world, everyone has evolved into multiple platform people. You have remained a columnist and a writer for the Boston Globe, and very few people get to do that for an entire career. Why have you done that and not become Dan Shaughnessy, the pardon the interruption guy or whatever? Uh, probably it's the only thing I'm good at. Uh, if in some would question, there'd be a lot of quarreling with that too. I'm sure, but it's something that I can do. I have done, and it, you know, again, writing a column, you never really figured out. If you figure it out, you're in trouble. So, 
But I enjoy that. It's, it's worked out pretty well. I think I have a voice in Boston, as Bob Ryan did before me and Ray Fitzgerald before him. And we've had a lot of uh, wonderful folks in the market. But, uh, yeah, I... Like everybody else, Peter, you know, I've done, I've written 12 books and, and done TV and radio to try to pay the college tuitions and stuff that we do. But at the same time, it's always, you know, Bob Ryan always said this, of the Boston Globe. That's the most important part of our title, Dan Shaughnessy, of the Boston Globe. That is the mothership. That is what we do. And that is the core of it. And I enjoy doing it. And the one advantage in today's world, the digital world, quick opinion world, these new platforms is that I am fast and uh, that's come in handy when something breaks I can get them something they can have online in an hour because I just can I did term papers that way I'm not saying they're good but we have an old we have an old expression nobody faster is better and nobody better is faster that's, that's us uh, Dan what do you think about our business now you uh, I mean, the way I sort of look at it, I was talking with an NFL PR guy here, and uh, so he said, hey, what did you do this week? And I said, well, I, I rode to work with Doug Peterson on Friday from his home, near his home in South Jersey, and we had 35 minutes in the car. I asked him about everything, asked him about Belichick, you know, asked him about everything, and I said, you know, I said, that's kind of what I do. I really try to make sure that I get some. And he goes, oh, yeah, you know, I didn't see that. I'll have to look for that. And so I said to him, I'm not telling you that you absolutely should see my column in any way, shape, or form. But I said, how do you determine what to read in this snowstorm avalanche of a landscape today? And so because I think so much of what is out there is simply let's flood and get clicks. Mm -hmm. And I worry myself, and what I tell people I work with all the time is be different, be distinctive, be really, really good. And I worry about our business that we're not really, really good. A, well, lot, of, a lot of the stuff that's out there. Yeah, I think you know progress sometimes works the other way, and I think that's happened. We can't be the old guys baying at the moon wishing it was the way it used to be, and I understand that. It's evolution. Things evolve. In my view, there's always going to be a need for good storytelling and good writing, well-crafted writing, and opinions, and that's what we do. They're, they're presented differently and received differently, but what you did riding in the car, like, I want to read that. I want to read that more than I want to read what you think of Doug Peterson which is all I can do just from a distance because yeah. you know, we don't get to know them the way we do anymore. So anyone who can be around it and tell me what's around them. If it's a college kid and he's, he's writing from Emerson College, tell me about the Emerson basketball team. I hear they have a seven-footer. How'd that guy end up there? I want to know what he knows about Emerson because it's around and he can find out. I don't care what he thinks about the Celtics. I can listen to talk radio and hear what everybody thinks about the Celtics. So I still love the primary source work that you do, that anyone does, and the young people. I would just encourage, you know, get off the couch, get out, be around the people. It's harder and harder to do. As you know, the access gets tougher and tougher, and you get some of that access because of who you have been and who you are now. It's not easy for the young people to establish any relationship with Bill Belichick, Doug Peterson, Doug Flutie, anybody out there. It's so much harder now. The gates are high and they are just insulated from us like never before. That's the thing that worries me the most, actually, because about finding out what is real and finding out different than the pasteurized stuff, that I, I, I really, 
I worry about the young people in the business just sort of settling for doing, going to the press conferences and listen to Bill Belichick say nothing for an hour and Tom Brady say nice things about everybody. I, I really worry that there isn't going to be enough stuff out there that's truly meaningful. And my biggest worry, Dan, is the aggregating sites. Because if the news gatherers and the news producers eventually start to disappear, and they are disappearing, they're getting laid off, all that's so the aggregation sites now are going to be significantly more speculative than they are newsy. And what is speculative? Anybody can sit there and do that. And that's my biggest worry. And I, this is an open-ended question. Yep. What's your biggest worry about the business? Well, uh, to, to your point, you know, what you've stated, I believe so much. It's like having the, taking the picture and having the negative, the old negative, that's, that's primary source. When you take a picture and then you take a picture of the picture and take a picture of that, it loses a generation each time. And that's what's happened with the news business is that people aren't getting primary source. They're just repeating what they've heard or what's parsed out. And no one's, without those beat guys, the guys you reference, the guys in there every day, you know, you know, finding out things and getting stuff out there, we all just have to rely on what the team wants people to know, which is generally all sweetness and good things. So we lose things there. Um, when you ask the the hardest thing, I mean, I've I've given up on the print. I understand that that's gone. I just I do worry about having referenced before the quality of writing that that no one notices or cares. Uh, if you try and write something, it's funny or well crafted. Nobody notices. All they care about is the opinion there, or they don't have the the time or the attention span. It's just not noticed. And again, it's not even young people's faults. It's just the way things have evolved. But uh, it's unfortunate, and I, it, 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 it saddens me. I've got a bunch of very uh, sort of quick Polaroid, Polaroid-ish yeah. questions about various things. You wrote something about three or four weeks ago about Nancy Kerrigan. Mm-hmm. Okay? Nancy Kerrigan, who is, is from Massachusetts, lives there now. And we talked a little bit about it. The I, Tanya movie, to me, is absolutely fascinating. It would be almost like if it were, and this is a much different thing, I, OJ. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's good. It's just, yeah. it's totally bizarre yeah. that Tanya Harding is now at the, whatever, Grammy, Emmys, yeah, I, I don't even wonder what it was. Golden and getting, Globes, and Oscars. Getting, and getting cheered and everything right. like that. And I'm just thinking to myself... What exactly happened? What happened in our society where somebody, whether she had anything to do with that or not, they're making a gauzy movie about her. Yes. And, you know, I, I don't know. I want to hear your no, thoughts it's a, it's and a, about Kerrigan. Well, with Tanya, it's a soft reinvention of a person who, you know, had an interesting career, and, and but came up short in a lot of ways, and most of the time was her own fault. This is a soft, sympathetic version of, you know, she was abused, and she had bad people in her life, and those things I'm sure are true, but everything has kind of been flipped where... Basically, a woman-on-woman crime is now being reinvented as that, who's the victim here? Well, Nancy Kerrigan was the victim. She's the one that they kneecapped to get her out of the Olympics. And she ended up overcoming that and winning a silver medal in the Olympics that Tanya failed at. And Nancy has gone off and had three children and and lives in greater Boston, doesn't say much or do much, doesn't have much to say. And I called her a few weeks ago. I had this old phone book with, you know, this again, we talked about old school, with old numbers in it. And I had Kerrigan with this, you know, digits next to it. I called 
Peter, I was just hoping it wasn't Joe Kerrigan. (laughs) (laughs) It didn't end well. Joe Kerrigan, the old pitching coach of the Red Sox Sox manager. It it didn't end well with us. I'm thinking, (laughs) oh, boy, I got two shots here. And I said, uh, yeah, this is Dan Shaughnessy. Uh, I was trying to reach Nancy. Is this the right number? And I hear a long pause and then a reluctant, yes. I'm like, well, bad on you, Nancy. You picked up and you got me here. She didn't have much to say, but it was like a glorified no comment. She did say she wasn't the victim. She chooses not to talk about it. She hasn't seen the movie. And, you know, it's going to come back at the Oscars. I mean, Tanya Harding will be there and she'll be reinvented again. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> it's just... It's, yeah. Um, you have this really cool thing now is your Twitter avatar. It's a tomato can. Just for a couple of weeks. So yeah. Probably be gone by the It's end of really week. one of my favorite <laughs> avatars of all time, just simply because of the tomato can concept. For those who don't mm. know, who don't live in New England, who are not like journalism fans, Dan Shaughnessy is very, uh, uh, very fond of calling every New England Patriots opponent a tomato can because at the end of the day they become tomato cans they do. and they lay down on they the canvas themselves. they beat themselves so I want to know how did you come up with tomato can and how has it had a life of its own it's just evolved over the years Peter where the Patriots are in this division the AFC East which you are very familiar with and no one has pushed back on them in 18 years I mean they've won you know virtually like 16 out of 18 division titles a million coaches and quarterbacks. Name the second-best quarterback in the 18 years Brady's been quarterback of the Patriots in the division. It's probably Chad Pennington. It's probably, it could be Jimmy Garoppolo. I don't know. But there's been nobody. They, they're always reinventing themselves. No wins in this century for the Bills in the playoffs. One game. Dolphins, one win in this century. That makes the Jets the best of the lot. So they, they traditionally start off knowing they're going to get first-round by, second-round home game. And it's just been really they, – they've earned what they have, but it just seems unusually – easy for them. This year they're going to face Marietta, Blake Bortles, and Nick Foles to win a Super Bowl. I'm sorry. It's, that's not, you know, Bradshaw or, or the old Steeler. Yeah. yeah, it's just, <laughs> and even like in the earlier incarnation when they had to beat the early Roethlisberger Steelers and Peyton Manning get through Denver, get through the Colts, and there were teams pushing back. I just feel like it's all gone away for them. So yes, and r- weekly I just mock the other team and it, and it hasn't come back to bite me yet. I mean, <laughs> and, you know, the Titans, the, the Jags put up a good game. But again, they lose their minds. If the Jags just kept doing what they were doing, they would have won the game. This is not one of the great Patriot teams of this 18-year dynasty. It's not. You know that. If you look at every position group on the field on Sunday, with the exception of quarterback and head coach. They're better. I mean, come on. Right. Of course they are. So they but but then why are they five and a half point dogs? Because of Brady and Belichick and because even if they have a lead if they have a ten point lead in the fourth quarter, they're screwed. That means you're definitely gonna lose to the Patriots because you lose your way, you stop doing what you're doing. You know, I don't know football like you do, but I know the Jags, they kept handing the ball off on first down. When it wasn't working anymore. Yeah, and then they'd have a possession and, and would use up a minute and ten seconds and give the ball back to them. I mean, this is the stuff that Seattle the did. The turnover in that game meant nothing. No. The, the that should have been the end of the game. That should have been the end of the game. Turning the ball over with ten minutes to go or and, with ten, and a ten-point lead. And I'm sorry, like, go back to the Pete Carroll Super Bowl when Pete had won the Super Bowl and said, I don't think so. I think I'll try this slant pass over the middle instead. And then last year with Dan Quinn, they're ahead 28-3. to They lose their minds. I mean, do you realize that they allowed two two-point conversions in that comeback by the Patriots? You know that's really hard to do. Those are not automatic. In that game, they were. They're back on the heels. Come on, just come across the line. Score again. It's like scoring four touchdowns, which 
the Patriots did with ease. It always happens. And again, Napoleon had a saying, never interrupt your enemy when he's making a mistake. That is the Patriots. That should be out there with do your job and next man up. It's a good one. Um, you feel the same way about this game? I do, but I believe you. You know football, and I believe the Eagles. And I've talked to people here. I know they're substantive, and I think if they had Carson Wentz, maybe they'd be favored. And I don't think this is a great Patriot team, but I believe that Doug Peterson and Nick Foles are incapable of beating Bill Belichick and Tom Brady in a Super Bowl. I'm sorry, I, can, I will not buy that until I see it with my own eyes. Uh, Dan, you know what's really interesting about this iteration of the Patriots to me? It's almost like two iterations. They had the winning three out of the first four, and now they could have winning three out of four again. Yeah. Uh, you believe this lasts much longer? I, I don't know, Peter. It just feels like this has got to be near the end, although I'm not seeing any, any resistance in the conference, and maybe you can tell me, but I'd look around, and I don't see the next ones that are coming along to take their place here. But let's face it. If Brady's Jacksonville gets a quarterback, yes. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Well, we need that. And yeah. uh, I just I don't think. But Bel nobody in the division. No. And Belichick and Brady aren't in a hurry to move over and give it to the next guy. We could be in Atlanta having the same conversation next year. It's going to be, I think Belichick and Brady are both back next year. And uh -huh. then after that, every year it's like we'll see what happens. Yeah, you're talking about a 66-year-old man at that point and Tom being 41. And, I mean, come on, this is football. There's supposed to be term limits on this. Do you believe that Brady has found a new way to stay healthy? What do you think of the Brady pliability, high, you know, hydrate out the wazoo? What do you think yeah, of all that? I don't like it. I don't think the science backs it up. I think it works for Tom. Good for Tom. I think that's great. And, uh, and God, you know, it's amazing what he's doing. There's no question about that. I think he's been lucky. I think he's been uh, a beneficiary of the new rules. I think he's surrounded by a tremendous coach, owner, and staff. And it's all worked for them. But I, and I think it's a mistake to continually tease. I'm Irish. I don't go around saying, oh, things are going great. And for Tom to, you know, Tom versus time, and to, uh, to promote the notion that you are impervious from injury or that if you do this, this will not happen to you, I think it's bad messaging. I think it's bottom feeding. I'm not a fan of it. With Dan Shaughnessy of the Boston Globe. Dan, tell me in your mind right now, what's football going to be like in 10 years? Well, that's a good question. I've thought On of, all levels. Yeah. I mean, first of all, I don't see, I know the concussion problem is very real. And I understand, you know, again, my kids are older. I'll have grandsons. Maybe I'll have a vote on whether they play football or not. I don't think it's necessary to play tackle football at young ages. But I think that the, the, the places where the NFL is drawing from are not going to be affected by the concussion problem. That the single parents or the people in impoverished lands are not going to prevent their sons from playing football in Brownsville, Texas, or Western Pennsylvania, or Florida, or California. That the market, of, the pool of players is still going to be there. But I think it's going to affect the dual county league near where I live in Newton and, you know, uh, white suburbia, you know, football, I think is going to fade away a little bit. I understand that. Uh, television ratings. I still, I know they're down, but it's still, when I hear NFL ratings are down, it's like hearing that Harvard endowment is down to me. It's like, it's like hearing what Harvard endowment is down. You know, it, <laughs> it's true. It's down, but it's still, it's still the most watched thing out there. So I understand. And, and the way people get their TV and the streaming and the platforms, it's different. Some of that's built in. Everything's down with ratings. Uh, I don't believe the league is, is, is going south in a big way like 
like has been a popular notion this year. I think the TV ratings, concussions, obviously those are huge things. I think it's still the perfect game for the future because of fantasy, because of betting, because of the violence, the commercial time. It's still impervious from DVR. I think they're still going full steam ahead. I'll tell you a story from 2017 from something that I did. We did this thing at our site this this year called Football in America. We went to eight metropolitan areas, and we took the temperature of the game at the youth level, high school level, college level, and pro level. I did the Bay Area. Okay, so on Friday night, I went to Old Keysar Stadium, and I saw an inner-city San Francisco high school football game. It wasn't great, but there was one kid on Mission High School who was going to college, and he was going to play football. And he wasn't great, but he was really quick. He was a Darren Sproles type. And we talked to his mother, and we said, are you worried about uh, are you worried about him and, and, and you know, what's going to happen to him down the road? you worry about head injury? And she basically looked at me like I was six years old. And she said, um, I, I should tell you about our lives. Yeah. You know, when my son was 10 years old, we were the victim of a home invasion. And two men came into our house and shot my husband in the head, dead, right in front of my son. And when he was dying, he lived for a little while. When he was dying, he looked up at my son at one point. And this is an incredibly apocryphal story. But he looked up, looked up at my son and said, stick with football. That's going to get you out of here. And she told me that from that point on, he was obsessed with football yeah. and trying to make something of his life through football. And she said, I don't have anything else. Yep. I have nothing else to offer him to get him out of this life. And so our whole goal was try to get to college, try to use football to get to college, as so many families in this, yep. in this country are doing. That's why football won't die. Now, we agree on this. I, I, it won't die. And then one other story I'll tell you. was in Dallas this year, and Saturday morning woke up at a hotel in Dallas, got the Dallas morning news, Open up the sports <laughs> section. Seven open pages. Dallas Morning News broadsheet paper. Seven open pages on high school football in greater Dallas. And the seventh page was agate of every high school football score in the state of Texas from the previous night. And, Dan, it was almost, it it, it was an avalanche of football. And... Texas Monthly recently wrote a story where they said that football participation from 1911 or from 2011 to 2016 is down 14 mm-hmm. percent in the state of Texas. And I said, it's just like what you said. Yeah. It's like Harvard Endow- Harvard Endowment is down. I mean, okay, it's down that much, and maybe over 40 or 50 years, that's right. going to matter. Over the next generation, yeah. I don't think it's going to matter very much. Absolutely, a hundred percent on that. That's it's people's. It's a way out, and you're just not going to get that kind of, you know, suburban parenting to say, "Oh, we don't. We choose not to do this because they have choices." The situation you're describing, they feel like they don't have choices to play football. Um, in our remaining couple of minutes, I want to ask you about the Boston Red Sox. Of course, you do. You're a hawk for the Red Sox. Yeah, I am. That. Unfortunately, that's yeah. my team. So, 
I don't really mind they haven't gone nuts in this offseason. <laughs> yeah. I don't know that I want to spend $8 billion on J.D. Martinez. If, he, if Boris can find somewhere else to, to get him that money, let him go. I don't know. What's the your prevailing attitude? Well, the alarming thing for them back home is that, that people have kind of forgotten about them because the Patriot thing has taken steam and the Celtics may have vaulted past the Red Sox in local popularity. Um, Sox have won 93 in a row, 93 games two years in a row, won two divisions in a row, but... Uh, their postseason performance has been dismal. Uh, they need, the standards are very high in our region now where winning a division doesn't do it for people anymore. It's a good team. It's a good everyday core. And I, the pitching staff could be really strong. I mean, you know, Sale, Price, Pomerantz, these guys are, you know, Porcello, they're in the prime of their pitching careers. Could have a real good team. What, what kills them right now is the Yankees have vaulted past them, which they only finished two games behind them last year, but then they played longer in, the, in, in October. And went out and got Stanton. So that's an issue. It's going to make it good. The Boston Yankee thing will be will be very real again. Not like it was those years ago, but it's still better. And uh, I think that uh, they're just a little bit quiet right now. And fans have forgotten about them. Now, the Red Sox truck goes to spring training the day after the Super Bowl. And we get down there on February 12th. And maybe we can fire it up again. But uh, it's a team with something to prove, and unfortunately for them, they can't prove anything until October. Uh, Dan, do you think there's a chance at all that David Price picked up the phone this offseason and called Dennis Eckersley and said, I'm sorry? That would be great. That would be music to everybody's ears. I don't believe so. David was very stubborn about it. I love David Price before all this stuff happened, and I've, I just think he's not being smart. And he's being petulant, and he's, he believes he's some sort of a leader there now. And that's not the kind of leadership that they need. It was a small thing in the scheme of life, but it, the notion that it was I thought it was big. Well, in the scheme of life, small. But I mean, the yeah. notion that it was tolerated, it took on a life of its own, that the team, you know, this is where the player gets bigger than the team, and no one's... For those who don't know, who live in Petaluma, California, <laughs> um, explain this story quickly. Well, in a nutshell, David Price, wonderful young pitcher with a $130 million contract, whatever it is. Uh, he acted out on a plane this year because they thought the color commentator, Dennis Eckersley, was being overly critical, which is not true. But, you know, guys hear stuff. Their wives say, oh, so-and-so was hard on you. And, you know, he, he embarrassed Dennis Eckersley on the plane. He, uh, he was uh, foul, and, and teammates applauded this demonstration, and Price took away that he was some sort of a leader and then said, well, some people just don't know how hard it is to play this game. And, and Dennis Eckersley would be the last guy you could say that about since he is in the Hall of Fame, is a recovered alcoholic, had one of his teammates run off with his wife playing baseball, has been married three times, uh, his brother was in prison. He has lived through every up and down you can possibly have as a baseball player and as a human being. Gave up the most famous home run of the last 60 years, the Kirk Gibson moment, and always a stand-up guy, always in front of his locker, never making excuses. So he applies those same rules to the things he sees when he's a commentator. That's what the fans want, and players should be tough enough to take it when you're making $100 million to pitch. So Price needs to get on board. I would, If he made that call, that would be a great thing for everybody. I hope he did. Um, last thing I will say to you, I lived in Boston for two and a half years, 2009 to 2011, lived in the South End, absolutely loved it. 27-minute walk to Fenway Park, made it 50 times when I lived there. So here was the interesting thing that I found when I lived in Boston. So I grew up in northern Connecticut. Red Sox were the be-all, end-all. When I grew up in the 60s, 
uh, the Patriots were nothing. Everybody in Connecticut liked the Giants. And so, and so everything has changed. But when I moved to the South End, here's what shocked me. I had two construction guys come in. One uh, was from Ireland. Another guy was a local guy. They're both big Patriots fans. Mm-hmm. And I said, rank the teams in Boston mm-hmm. in order of your fandom. Okay? And one of them said to me, uh, the Irish guy said, the only team I care about is the Patriots. The second guy said, uh, the Patriots are number one, the Red Sox are number two, and if the other two teams are winning, I like them. Yeah. And I said, so, and, and I said, is it only because the Patriots, only because the Patriots are winning now? And he goes, that's a big deal. But he said, baseball really bores me. And I, th- I think a lot of people, baseball doesn't bore me. I'm totally fascinated by it as you are. But I really think that the Patriots really might have jumped over the Red Sox they in have. Boston. Absolutely. I mean, that's happened, and the success, the fact that football is as popular in America as it is, and all the previously cited fantasy and gambling and those things. Yes, the Patriots are number one. If The talk radio shows that we have, and we have two full-time 724, and Patriots dominate. It's hard to get any conversation going around the Red Sox if they're out of season. Patriots are never out of season. They have supplanted them as the number one team in the market, and it's not even close at this point. And that's a lot for me to say, because as you say, I am a baseball guy. Dan Shaughnessy, really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks so much. It's fun, Peter. It's the MMQB Podcast. And now, a special report for the MMQB Podcast with Peter King. On the road with the MMQB, on the road to the Super Bowl, with Kalen Kaler, who stops in Ada, Ohio, at the Wilson Factory. Wilson makes all NFL footballs. Hi, this is Kalen Kaler with the Monday Morning Quarterback, and we've got Jenny Brentis driving behind the wheel. We are in Ada, Ohio, and we are headed to Wilson Football Factory. Um, Wilson, who is the official football maker for the NFL and NCAA football, has their headquarters of producing the footballs right here in this northwestern Ohio small town. We're meeting with Dan Regal, who is the plant manager this morning, and he let me know when I was checking his availability, he let me know that you know, we needed to come before Wednesday of next week before the Super Bowl because they are a bunch of their top staff and executives at this plant will be headed to the Super Bowl in Minneapolis. Um, I guess they do little live demonstrations of kind of how to make a football as part of the whole Super Bowl experience there. This is the MMQB podcast. We're now inside of the Wilson Football Factory with Dan Regal, the plant manager, and he's been here for 37 years. And he's going to walk us around and give us a little tour. We've got our safety glasses on, and we're ready to go. Good morning, Dan. Good morning. (laughs) Welcome to Ada. Thank you. We'll go through the plant in the order the product's made. Yeah, we're walking, you know, there's yellow painted lines that we're walking on, some safety paths. Um, Dan mentioned earlier that the factory is about 48,000 square feet, and it's not about as long as a football field. There's all different paths and people hard at work already. It's about 9 in the morning. 
So this is the first operation. We're cutting uh, football panels out of the side of a cow. The hide comes into us exactly like the football looks. It's got all the little pebbles on it. And we have our own formula for the leather. And the hides have little W's randomly throughout. Yeah, so, so every panel has several W's on it to prove that it's our formula. Nice. It's a big, uh, basically a football shaped cookie cutter. And she's got a little machine that presses it down to make the cutout. There's four panels in a football, and okay. for each hide, we get a, approximately 10 footballs out of it. Cool. So one cow equals 10 footballs? Uh, one cow equals 20 footballs because when they butcher the cow, they cut the hide right down the back. Oh, got so it. So got two sides. Nice. All right. Yeah, the people are the most important part of making a football. It's not really a job, it's a craft. Yeah. You have to be able to sew, you have to be able to work with leather. Okay, so after we get the panels cut out, the second step is to identify the product. And we're stamping the Super Bowl information on the panels now. And this is done with heat and pressure. And it's uh, not inks, it's foil that's released off of rolls. It is the actual cosmetics on the ball. Many employees at Wilson spend their entire careers at one station in the process, repeating that task every single day. Of all the steps in making a football, I wondered what would be the most enjoyable part of the process. What, in your opinion, what is like the best part of this process? Like maybe the the part that's the most fun or I don't know least labor intensive part of making the football or the most coveted part of the process I guess. Well I can tell you the most difficult jobs are the sewing jobs because it takes three months, four months, five months to actually learn how to do it properly. Oh really? Yeah and I'd say maybe the the coolest job might be lacing the ball up because the ball's all done, it's right side out, and you're actually seeing it, you're actually finishing it by, by uh, putting the laces in. Yeah. Um, I know when you're watching these people, they make it look real easy, but it's taken hours of training for them to get to this point. It's much quieter over here. Yeah. So after we get the lining on the uh, leather, then we start sewing the ball together inside out. It has to be sewn together inside out because we don't want the seams to show. It's the MMQB Podcast. The most physically challenging job at the plant is the job of the turner. It takes real muscle to wrestle the stiff pigskin shell right side out. But the turners, who are all men, make the job look as smooth as flipping a pancake. One of our employees uh, worked here 43 years. He turned footballs his entire career. He turned, I think it was over 5 million footballs in his career. Wow. And the street out here is now named after him. And it's named Charles Moore Turn because he was a turner. So after the ball is sewn together, it's inside out, and we have punched the lace holes in. 
That's where the laces are going to be. And that's where we turn the ball right side out through those where the laces are. This, this is one of the changes we made. This used to be completely done by hand. They used to actually pound the ends with a hammer, and now the machine down there presses the ends down just like that would. They used to have to break down the ends by hand, and now this machine actually breaks it down for them. So it's, uh, physically it's easier than it was 15 years ago. We've had professional football players come through on tours and we always let him try to turn a football because just looking at this guy it looks really easy but they end up with the ball in a knot and the guy has to get it straightened out for them and they when they leave here they have an appreciation for the product they're using yeah definitely they'll turn approximately five to six hundred of these every day after the turners are finished and the ball is flipped right side out it's ready to receive its bladder and laces Okay, so after the ball's turned right side out and we put a bladder in it, then the person lacing the ball puts approximately three to four pounds of air pressure in the ball, whatever's comfortable for them to lace. There's eight lace holes on a ball. They have to run the lace through each one because we double lace so that there's actually two laces and that's done for grip. It sticks up a little bit higher. I think I read that this plant produces 3,000 balls a day. Is that correct? Yep. We make approximately 3,000 game-quality footballs every day from peewee league to midget league to junior high and then official. Great. So this is the last step in the process, this lacing? This is the last, actually, uh, manual step mm -hmm. of putting the ball together. And then we're going to mold the ball which is actually the final production step. So after we get the balls laced up, they only have approximately three to four pounds of air in them. We're gonna put them in a mold. The mold is the shape and size that we want the ball to be. We'll put 120 pounds of pressure in the ball. Before that mold reopens, the air pressure is back down to 13 PSI, which is what we want it to be. That's game play, 13. How many people came calling uh, in the midst of Deflategate? Hundreds <laughs> called. So with, with the balls that you've already shipped to the Super Bowl teams, to the Eagles and the Patriots, um, is the reason you want to get those out pretty early so that those quarterbacks can get those balls the way they want them? I know that quarterbacks are very particular about, you know, roughing up the balls, the way they feel in their hands. Is that the reason why you guys do that? Well, we get those to them as soon as possible because the game's within two weeks. It's a short window, and I think they do like to practice with them a little bit. Like you say, get them roughed up and, and worn a little, and they can pick out the ones that they feel most comfortable with. Yeah. Okay, so after we have the inspection process, there's one more thing to do, and that's package it up and ship it out. Dan Regal will soon travel to Minneapolis for Super Bowl 52 with a team of his top Wilson employees. They'll perform their unique art for crowds at the NFL's Super Bowl experience in the days leading up to the game. How many Super Bowls have you been to? This will be my 25th Super Bowl game. And my first Super Bowl was Super Bowl 16. At that time, though, it wasn't anything. Mm -hmm. It was just like another game. Mm -hmm. I just think of how much it's changed. And obviously the... Um, 
exposure and what the Super Bowl means today is is so big compared to what it was at that time. You know, it just seems like everybody in this town, because it is small, has a connection to Wilson and this football factory. So would you say the same? And how would you describe um, this plant sort of impact on the community around it? Obviously, we get national exposure because of where our product goes and where it's used. And I think everybody's really proud of that. And I think there's a special meaning to everybody here that the people that work here, you know, live out in the Midwest, out in, you know, out amongst the cornfields, yet we make such a high exposure product. And I think everybody tends to to be very proud of that fact, not just the people that work here, but the people that live in this area. Thanks to my guests, Al Michaels of NBC Sports, Howie Roseman, the general manager of the Philadelphia Eagles, and Boston Globe sports columnist Dan Shaughnessy. And special thanks to the MMQB's Kaylin Kaler for her report from the Wilson factory in Ada, Ohio. If you enjoyed these conversations, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes in the MMQB series, such as my conversations with Tom Brady, Ben Roethlisberger, and Drew Brees. You can find these on the MMQB.com, on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or anywhere you get your podcasts. Don't forget to leave a review while you're there. You can also hear the MMQB podcast with Peter King on Sirius XM Radio every Saturday morning at 7 Eastern, on Mad Dog Sports Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 82. Thanks to the fine folks at Cadence 13 for working overtime on their production work this week. And thanks, of course, to my sponsors, State Farm and Mattress Firm. Please support them the way they support this podcast. And I'll see you next Monday with a special post-Super Bowl podcast.